It's a joy to be with you again this morning and just to celebrate what we started a long time ago, the Lord did, and two weeks ago in our Resurrection Sunday that Christ is indeed alive, that we are with a risen Savior who is not dead in the grave, but instead He is present, ministering to us and loving us and caring for us. Special thanks to everybody in our church who labored hard uh, to host that Resurrection Sunday, and thank you for that. And also, uh, special thanks for our communication team. If you notice on our bulletin, there's a sermon outline there at the bottom that you can follow, and uh, we're thankful for them, for their care for us. Well, this morning, we come back to our old friend, the Sermon on the Mount, Christ's God-breathed words that he gave as the Holy Messiah and as the King of Heaven to his disciples, where he establishes the heavenly life that he requires of all men. The heavenly life he requires of all who would enter into his kingdom, for all who would be a part of his heavenly realm, what we refer to today as Christians. And this, of course, is the heavenly life that Jesus himself came to give to us. This is the heavenly life that, in fact, Jesus lived day by day, minute by minute. And this is the heavenly life that Jesus came and died to give to all men, to anyone who would repent of their sins and turn from their past life and instead place their faith and their life in the hands of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as their King and their Savior and their Lord. Now we know that and we're familiar with it. But where does that intersect in our lives? Day to day, minute by minute, moment by moment. And the good news of God's Word, the beauty of what Jesus puts before us, is that when by grace through faith, He indeed does become our Lord and Savior, the one who is in charge of our lives, the one to whom our lives belong. It's not just a rule book or a hard drive or a chip that He puts in of a way to live for a better life. He does indeed become present in our lives through the power of His Spirit and His Word. He does indeed give us, by the power of His Spirit and His Word, an entirely new heart, an entirely new life, a new heart and a new life that belong entirely to Him, that belongs entirely to heaven, instead of belonging entirely to the world and the things of this world. Humor me here for a minute. I like to lean on the pulpit, and when it rocks back and forth, I get seasick. And that's just me. Uh, but last week we heard a sermon on holiness. And what was put before us, this idea of holiness, and when we think of holiness, we think of without sin, perfection. And that indeed is part of holiness, what we sang about our holy God this morning. 
But sometimes what we overlook, brothers and sisters, is that the bigger picture of holiness, moral perfection's part of it, but the idea of holiness very much has to do with love and devotion. It is the idea of being wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. Every aspect of our heart, every aspect of our life belongs to the Lord and is entirely given over to the Lord. And we see that this is what the Lord calls in our relationships with one another, that they would reflect his fidelity and his love. So in my relationship with Julie, God's desire for our relationship is that my heart would be wholeheartedly devoted to her. And ultimately, that is part of my wholehearted devotion to the Lord, that there would be no other love that would compete. And the idea of moral perfection is part of that. But I think that's really important to see. And when Christ becomes our Lord, the life he gives us is a holy life. This is his gift to us. The heart that he gives us is a holy life. It's a heart and a life that belong entirely to the Lord, entirely to heaven, and no longer for the things of this world. We're not owned by those things, our jobs, our careers, our education, even, you could even say, our our families. And this is the heart and life that Jesus lives and gives and that he's teaching his disciples about in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is why so many of the statements in the Sermon on the Mount seem so radical, hard to understand. He's talking about a holy heart and a holy life. And one of the most precious gifts that's given to us with this heart and life that Christ himself gives us is a heavenly desire. A heavenly desire. It's a genuine God-given desire for the eternal treasures of heaven beginning with Christ and his word. It's that love, that desire for what the world cannot see or value, but is of infinite value to the child of God. The same way for a young child. That value and desire, even though they might not be able to articulate it, for their mother when they're first born, to be close, to be nurtured, to go and cry and be in that direction. In Christ, when he comes into our lives and becomes Lord, this is the heart he gives us, a God-given desire for the things of heaven rather than the fallen and finite pleasures of this world. And this is a reality that is true of God's children, which many see firsthand where gradually and for some suddenly, there is this growing desire for Christ and his word and the people of God. And as the song says, the things of this world start to become strangely dim. Over time, there is this growing appetite, this hunger and thirst for the righteousness and love of God rather than the self-righteousness and the self-serving love of this world. And according to God, and as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points out this is really the proof and the evidence of God's blessing in our lives. Are you blessed by God? Well, part of the evidence or proof of God's blessing in your life is this growing desire for the things of heaven, not some abstract theoretical, growing desire for Christ himself, for the people of God, for the word of God, a growing desire for these things, and a waning desire for all the whistles and bells that got us excited in the past, in our past life. 
And it raises the question for each one of us, what is it that you desire most? What is it that you desire? Because this is going to reveal what you're devoted to and what your heart longs for. And what Jesus points out to his disciples and us in our text for this morning is that one of the greatest threats to this new heart and life that he has given us, one of the greatest threats, is the practice of clinging to the old desires of our past lives. Clinging to the self-righteous and sinful desires of our past life before Christ became our king. This is what Scripture and the Apostle Paul refers to as the desires of the flesh, where the idea of the flesh is our humanity, excuse me, separated from God. What our lives are like without God or without Christ in the picture. And Jesus begins to point out in Matthew 5, verses 20 through 30, he begins to point out to us, I've given you a new heart. I've given you a new life. I have come and I'm going to die to give this to you. And this includes new desires in your heart. The worst thing you can do, one of the greatest threats to our relationship. Similar. All right, in a married relationship. What's the greatest threat? You're going to keep those pictures of all your old girlfriends and boyfriends. It ain't going to go well, right? And Jesus comes out and points in our relationship to God even more so. The love that is to be celebrated and protected is a holy love. A love that is wholehearted in its devotion. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll read from verses 20 to 30, but our focus this morning will be on verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, begin, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with them to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your heart Excuse me, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, this is the word of the Lord and the word of our Lord. And it's with these words, Jesus reveals his own holiness and his holy love for his people. He reveals his 
heavenly desire and his heart's desire that his people would be free of ungodly and self-righteous desires. That's Christ's desire for his people. Why? Because these are the very desires that separate us from God and destroy our relationship with the Lord and with one another. And Jesus, in the very beginning, as he goes through these lists of illustrations and examples of the heavenly righteousness that he expects, what he really is doing in the beginning is he is cleaning house as Lord and King. He's coming out blow by blow and pointing out the self-righteous and ungodly desires in our past life that if they persist, they will destroy our relationship with God and one another. And he begins in verse 17 through 20 declaring that there is no place in his kingdom for the self-righteous and self-serving manipulation of God's word. That's the text. We didn't read it, but that's the portion before where he says, hey, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And he sets the table here and he points out, you can't have a righteousness like the scribes and the Pharisees, a self-serving and self-righteous interpretation of God's word where you take bits and pieces and you work it for the portions that work well for you to make you look righteous, that desire to justify yourself before men. Oh, I don't kill people. Oh, I don't commit adultery. Oh, I'm better than the next person. I don't go gambling or you name it. He said, no, you need to take all of God's word and you need to take it the way God intended it. And then what he does in verse 21 through 26, which we went through a few weeks ago, Jesus shows his disciples There's no place in his kingdom and there's no place in his worship for self-righteous anger, which in Jesus' economy is the equivalent of murder. And then as we come to verse 27 through 30, Jesus shows his disciples and us there is no place in his kingdom and there is no place in Christ's relationships for a heart that indulges in ungodly and self-righteous desire. And this is what Jesus equates with adultery. He draws a direct connection between the act of adultery and what's going on in our hearts and the very desires in our hearts that prompt gazes and looks. It covers the whole spectrum from how we look at one another to what we do to what's actually going on where? In our hearts. And this brings us to our first point this morning, Christ condemns ungodly, self-righteous desires. They have no place in his kingdom. They have no place in his heart. They have no place in his life. And if we're going to share his life and we're going to share his kingdom and we're going to share his heart, there will be no place in our lives for these things either. And Jesus begins in verse 27 by quoting a very familiar command, the very familiar seventh command, given first in Exodus 20:14, and then in Deuteronomy 5:18. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And in the strictest sense, adultery refers to the act of physical intimacy with someone else's spouse or betrothed. And in fact, in the ancient Near East, this was somewhat of a universal prohibition. 
and the penalty prescribed by God in the Old Covenant in Leviticus 20.10 was not slight. It was the death penalty, not for one, but for both the man and the woman, and both the man and the woman were referred to as adulterers. Now, once again, it's worth noting, prohibitions against messing around with someone's spouse was not unique to the Jews. Both Greeks and Romans had adultery laws. But unlike the Seventh Commandment, which was addressed to everyone, you shall not commit adultery, the Greek and Roman laws were primarily binding and punitive towards women. And you see this in the history of pagan religions, and it continues sadly within many traditional churches where women are viewed as the evil temptresses. And so that's why we put, you know, coverings over the top. That's why we segregate. That's why we do different things. And when things go south and things head south, in many of these laws throughout the ancient Near East, public enemy number one is the evil temptress. And we see in these laws, if you look at them, is that unlike the divine intent of the seventh commandment, the mindset of Greek and Roman society, which is just a mindset of all self-righteous societies, is do whatever you want with prostitutes, concubines, and slaves. And by extension today, it's our pornography, right? Those are our slaves. Do whatever you want with prostitutes, concubines, and slaves. Just don't get caught touching my spouse, my family, my estate, my car, my stuff. It was a protection of property law. It was a protection of a citizen's rights. And so if you were a concubine or a slave, you didn't have those rights. If you were a woman, you had less of those rights. It's the universal law, which most guys with a nice car you know it well. Don't touch my stuff. You can look at it. You can dream about it. But the moment you touch my car, the moment you touch my stereo, the moment you touch my technology, the moment you touch my stuff, whoa, then you cross the line. And now we have a problem. And brothers and sisters, this same self-serving and self-righteous mindset still rules our world. Or what is holy is not God or the life he gives, but what rightfully belongs to me. And that can extend to our church and our worship as well. And when Jesus comes with these words, what he does is he reverses and destroys all of that. By Jesus' time, it's the same self-serving and righteous mindset that manipulates the seventh command, where the remedy for adultery had become legal divorce. And legal divorce is what gave men of means, and like the Pharisees and the scribes, the ability to justify as many relationships and as wide, as many wives as they wanted, as long as they could acquire a legal certificate of divorce. And so Jesus is going to address this in verses 31 and 32, this abuse, he's going to address it in Matthew 19. 
But he begins in verse 27 and 28 to show where the problem really begins. And the problem, brothers and sisters, begins in our hearts, and it begins in the desires that rule our hearts. Jesus begins by explaining and exposing that what drives our lives and our looking for all the loopholes in the law really is the desire of our heart, a desire that is contrary to God, ungodly, or a desire that is self-righteous, a desire that says, I deserve this and I should have this even if someone else says I shouldn't. And so that's why Jesus comes and says in verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, strong desire, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. A desire is a longing. It's a wish for something or someone. And we have a tendency to think of our longings and our desires as private, as morally neutral, and as harmless. It's like daydreaming. As long as I'm looking off into the nowhere and thinking about it and it doesn't bother anybody else, no big deal. But the testimony of God's Word and what Jesus is pointing out is that our heart's desires are an expression of what we worship, what we value, what we're devoted to. And the testimony of the law, beginning in Genesis 1, is that the Lord God created the first man and woman in His image. And this includes the gift of desires that reflect the heart and the image of God. Our desires were initially a gift from the Lord. And those desires that God gave us were desires that were wholly devoted to God, wholly devoted to His goodness, wholly devoted to His grace. And this includes our desire for fellowship and unity with our God, our Creator. And this includes the good desire for fellowship and unity with one another. And this includes the desire for fellowship and unity between a man and a woman, according to God's Word, within the God-given covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. All of these desires that God gave They were given to us, brothers and sisters, so that we might glorify God, demonstrate His infinite goodness and His grace, and so that together we might enjoy God forever. But as we come to Genesis 3, which you're familiar with, the Lord God shows us how sin begins with an ungodly and self-righteous desire to worship and to serve ourselves rather than our Holy Creator. And this is expressed in Eve's lust or her longing and her look at the fruit which the Lord God has forbidden. And the result is an act of disobedience that separates Adam and Eve from God and from one another. And where does it begin? It begins with an ungodly and self-righteous heart. an ungodly and self-righteous desire that says, I want this, I deserve this, and God is wrong to withhold this from me. 
I want this, I deserve this, and God is wrong to withhold this from me. Now think about that statement for a minute. And in Genesis 3, it's with regards to a fruit that the Lord has forbidden. But let's think about our lives and how many things, be it people, be it jobs, be it careers, be it relationships, be it images, I want this, I deserve this, God is wrong to withhold this from me. I will have it now. And the point that Jesus makes repeatedly is that our desires, brothers and sisters, are never neutral, they are never harmless, and they are never private before God. They affect others, and God sees it. And our desires, brothers and sisters, they are either godly, conforming to the character and will of God, and righteous, right before God, or they are ungodly, and they are self-righteous. And they are either life-taking. How does this make things better for me? How does this ministry make things better for me? How does this church make things better for me? How do these relationships make things better for me? They are either life-taking, or they are either life-giving. Brothers and sisters, your relationships are either going to be life-giving or life-taking. It's as simple as that. Your families are either going to be life-giving or life-taking. Your ministries are going to be either life-giving or life-taking. Self-serving or loving sacrificially. And it comes down to what is the desire ultimately that rules our hearts. If you have your Bibles, have a look at Proverbs 21.25. Proverbs 21.25. The testimony of the wisdom literature as you go through for both David and Solomon as they go through is our desires are either going to kill us and others or they're going to give life and goodness to others. And Proverbs 21.25 says, The desire of the sluggard, what? What does it say? It kills him. The desire of the sluggard kills him. Now, sluggard, that's not a very contemporary word, is it? It's not something we use. Slothfulness, it's not something that we use. But it's the idea of someone who indulges, 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 indulges. That it's all about me, 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 what I desire with no regard. And the preacher and the author of Proverbs points out there are desires, brothers and sisters, that will kill us. And they will kill everybody else and anything else that comes in our paths. And so when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with strong desire, lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart as the living word of God. Jesus is showing his disciples that God's intent for the seventh command was not strictly to provide a list of do's and don'ts and, hey, if you get caught in someone else's bed, you're in big trouble. And Jesus didn't give this command like the Greeks and Romans, and, and, and it was the pre-incarnate Christ who gave this command to Moses. He didn't give it 
to provide a law to protect your property. And he didn't give a law so that we could have a Christian worldview and so that we could have family values and a focus on the family. If that's where we're at, brothers and sisters, we've missed the point. He's making that point right here. The Ten Commandments were given as part of God's covenant gift of salvation. His relationship, his relationship of holy love with his people. The Ten Commandments were given to God's people to put them back. and To point them back and to bring them back to God's holy desire for his people. It's to show them and, and give them a vision of God's heart for his people. That's why the first four commandments begin with our relationship with God and fidelity and faithfulness. It was to show us first the character of God, that the God that they worship, what we sang this morning, is a holy God. He wholeheartedly loves his people in a self-sacrificing way. He wholeheartedly loves his people and is faithful and he keeps his promises. He wholeheartedly loves his people and is gracious and kind, even at inconvenience to himself. He is wholly devoted. And as he goes from our relationship with the Lord into our relationship with one another, the Lord is showing and teaching his people his desire for them is that they would walk in his holy love, that their relationships, that their marriages, their ministries, their fellowship, their gathering, their work would all be an expression and a reflection of God's holy and pure love, his character, that they would be steadfast, that they would be faithful. And even more so, they were to help them understand how we are to look at one another. We're not to look at one another the way the pagans look at one another, like a piece of property or like someone or something to exploit or to have like a toy or an object or a car or a house that were created in the image of God. Brothers and sisters, when we look at one another, when we look at our spouses, when we look at our friends, do we look at that person as a child who is beloved and created in the image of the Most High God? There'd be a whole lot fewer shootings out there. If the desires of our heart were godly and righteous rather than self-righteous, I'm better than, I deserve, I should have, why shouldn't I have it now? The Lord gave the seventh commandment to protect the weaker vessel, not to protect the property rights of the strong and the mighty. It's a calling. As Old Testament scholar, Douglas Stewart points out, he says, when we understand contextually the seventh commandment, not just as a command against marital infidelity, not just as a command to protect property, not just as a command to prohibit promiscuity. That's typically how we think about it. When we understand the seventh commandment in the context of God's covenant and his love for his people, it is a condemnation of any desire or relationship 
that is contrary to the holy and faithful love of God for his children. Brothers and sisters, how do you want people to look at your kids? Young men, when you have daughters, how are you going to feel when someone comes and says, oh, I saw an image of your daughter, A, B, C, D, and E. And how much is tolerable and okay within the confines of the church where we say it's okay that you harbor those things in your heart just don't let it out and don't let anybody know. And Jesus is coming and saying this is contrary to God's desire for his people and the love that he desires to abound. There is no place for it. Like someone who comes into your home with fleas. How much do you want that around? No, man. Stand outside, have a shower, get cleaned up. Let's handle this together before you bring that stuff into our house. And when Jesus says to his disciples, but I say to you that everyone, he's saying no exceptions. No exceptions. No excuses. No, well, but you don't understand. No exceptions. Everyone who looks at a woman, ongoing persistent gaze, with lustful intent, a strong desire to have, to possess, or to use in a way that you see fit. Contrary to God's will and His word and His character, whoever does this has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Guilty of violating the seventh commandment, worthy of the death penalty, condemned by God to hell. That is how serious Jesus takes this. And the Apostle Paul, based on this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he goes and says, adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we can say that narrowly. Oh, that's just referring to the people who get caught. But when we come back to Christ's word, and even as you read Paul's epistles, very clearly at the, at the heart of it is anyone with ungodly, self-righteous desires that are ruling your life will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Is it harsh, brothers and sisters? Is it severe? Or is it holy? Well, what is the remedy, brothers and sisters, for this? As Jesus comes and says, hey, there's no room for this in my kingdom. Well, Jesus in verses 29 and 30 shows us it's a removal of ungodly, self-righteous desires from our lives and to have them replaced with the godly and righteous desires that only Christ can give. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Christ commands godly desires and actions. Christ commands godly desires and actions. In verses 29 and 30, Jesus addresses our ungodly desires with two commandments. He gives commands. And because of their severity, most people just dismiss it or say he's not serious. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
Well, is Jesus serious? And is the remedy for sinful desires literally tearing out our eyes and cutting off our hands? And if this is the case, our discipleship groups would be like an episode of Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Everybody would be walking around with eye patches and stumps. Well, Church Father Oregon, or origin of Alexandria, who lived from 185 to 254 A.D., one of the great church fathers, he learned the hard way that Jesus' words were not a cookie-cutter remedy. In fact, this is the very thing that Jesus is talking about and against, that we take portions of Scripture and we use it as a recipe to sort of come in and fix our problems, which is the way, sadly, much of biblical counseling and many of us approach things. Well, Origen learned the hard way that this is not what Christ intended. As a zealous young man, he was distressed over his sinful desires. And he tried to apply this text and control his lust by rolling naked on thorny briars. And throughout history, in the history of the Roman Catholic Church, monks would engage in similar practices. And Martin Luther also engaged in this practice, including whipping themselves, and Martin Luther whipping himself as well. And it's referred to by the name of mortification of the flesh. Mortification of the flesh. And it was believed that this was a literal interpretation of Jesus' words and also the words of the Apostle Paul where he talks about disciplining his body or beating his body into submission. But what Origen discovered, as Martin Luther also discovered, is that self-mortification, mutilation, cutting ourselves, it doesn't dampen down ungodly and self-righteous desires. It only fans the flame. So what did Origen do? He castrated himself, only to discover that his ungodly and self-righteous desires continued. Why? Because as Jesus points out, in the verse immediately before these two commands, in verse 28, the bondage, the slavery, the acts of selfish desire and sinful desire, where does it begin? It begins in our hearts. And so if you're going to start cutting, keep going, there's going to be nothing left. And this is a truth that Jesus makes repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And years later, by God's grace, Origen makes it known that in his youthful zeal, and we might even add, perhaps with self-righteousness, he had misinterpreted Christ's commands. And he put it on the record. I misinterpreted it. And next week, we're going to unpack in detail these two commands and what Jesus meant. And he's dead serious with these two commands. But suffice it today for this morning, what many overlook in verse 29 and 30 is that the remedy that Jesus presents for our sinful desires of our heart is nothing less than the living presence of His Lordship in our lives. 
And this is what we celebrate in Easter. We're very quick, brothers and sisters, to come to the commands as a list of do's and don'ts and believe if I know the command and I do it, we're going to be fine. But when we do that, brothers and sisters, who's the champion and who's the savior? We are. Just give me the recipe book. Just give me the playbook, Jesus, and I'll do it. And we fail to see that we can't make the plays because what we need is a holy Savior with a holy heart who has a pure and perfect love to come in and rule our hearts and minds. And that's why Jesus, with each of the examples, he begins with a variation of, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And what Jesus is doing here by the power of his word with his disciples is he's reversing the order of their lives. This doesn't start with you and what you hear. This starts with me and what I say. It's the same power that created the universe in six days. It's the same power that brought the children of Israel into covenant and set them free out of Exodus. It's the same word that brought the disciples to repentance and faith in him. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And Jesus shows his disciples what we need is the living presence of Christ as King and Lord. His heart, his life, his desires, taking charge of our heart and ruling our desires. Shaping how we think about one another. Shaping how we look at one another. Submitting and coming in and learning from Him and walking in His footsteps. To live and love one another as God created us to be, as beloved children of God, not as properties or pieces to use for my personal pleasure. This, brothers and sisters, is the good news of Easter that Christ did not die forever. He was in the grave for three days. Sin and death took their blows. But in the end, Christ is greater than sin and death and our sinful desires, and he rose on the third day. And this is why the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2, later he'll set it up about how we deal with our sinful desires. He writes in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The remedy, brothers and sisters, is the life of Christ in us. And that begins with our repentance and faith and submission of Christ as Lord. And so Paul, when you go to the end of Galatians, he writes in Galatians 5.1, he says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That where Christ is present in our lives, where he is in charge, where he is walking with us and we are following him like we sang this morning and we are submitting through obedience to his commands the path of freedom we are no longer enslaved by our sinful and self-righteous desires it's no longer well i need to look good well i need this well i need that it's look i'm a sinner i'm a wreck i'm a mess the only goodness in my life is christ he's the only righteousness 
He's the only holiness. He's the only perfection. And the only way I have any good in my life is when I'm with Him. And brothers and sisters, we don't obey to achieve a relationship. But there is no relationship with Christ. We're lying to ourselves if we believe we have a relationship with someone who we do not listen to, consider carefully His words, or obey. You've heard that illustration I've given many times. What type of a relationship do you think Julie and I would have? I said, I've got a great relationship with Julie, and you came over to our home, and I never listened to her, or I never complied with any of her requests or did anything that she asked me for. Now that illustration breaks down. Julie's not God, right? I'm not serving her. But you get the point in this relationship. Let's not create a myth about our relationship that, hey, I've done three commands that Jesus has asked me to do. I'm good with him. I'm rolling like it's a recipe book. No. The remedy, brothers and sisters, is the living presence of Christ that's given to us through the power of his spirit and his word and his gospel. It's coming to the cross. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. Christ's gospel gives us a choice. Christ's gospel gives us a choice. And when Christ comes into our lives through His Spirit and His Word, through the Word of the cross, we are given a choice. You can choose to have God's gift of Christ to be Lord and Savior of your life. Or you can continue as you are and allow the sinful, ungodly, and self-righteous desires of your heart to continue to rule your life and take you, your family, your relationships to its natural consequences. One of the best books I've read, secondary source after the scripture on this topic, Gus loses his grip. And if you struggle with sinful desires, as I do, I would encourage you to get this and read this. Young men, yeah, I'm talking to you. You need to get this and read this and go through this. And in this book, David Pallison writes, the truth is that we can't free ourselves from desires that have mastered us. The truth is that we can't free ourselves from desires that have mastered us. Only Jesus can. And so for this morning, brothers and sisters, as we look at our lives and we look at our desires and we look at the areas where there are rubs and difficulties in our lives, it's worth stopping first to say, let me be specific. What are the desires that are ruling my life? What are the desires? And be specific. Are these desires godly? And are they righteous? And do they conform to God's will? Or are they ungodly? Are they self-serving? And then as you look at them, come to the gospel, the good news of what God has done to save sinners through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God has put a choice before you. And bring them to the Lord. And make a decision on that choice. Will I hang on to these? Or will I come to Christ 
who says, those who the Father brings to me, those who come to me, I will by no means cast aside. And those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And consider in your heart who is your Lord and Savior and who is present in your life. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the remedy. And what a remedy we have. One who is far greater and who has conquered sin and death. We need you. We need your heart. We need your love. A heart and love that is pure. And we just ask, Lord Jesus, that you would be our King and our Lord and that the lives and the relationships and the interactions that we have, that they would be a reflection, Lord, of the desires of heaven and not the desires of this world. In your name we pray. Amen.